the first chapter in the book of Acts is the continuation, the ongoing work of Christ. You know, there's four Gospels. I know many of us are aware of this, but not everyone necessarily. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, talk about the life of Christ, his ministry. They cover his death. They talk about his resurrection. But the ongoing story of the operation of the Lord's work, his ongoing movement in people's lives, it starts to be recorded in the book of Acts. And it's helpful because in, in so many ways it continues the, the story of, of God's involvement with the human race. Now, Luke was the one who wrote the book of Acts. We believe the Lord uses these words and inspired these words, and these are the scripture that we use. But the, letter, the word was written, this, this book was written as a letter to a friend named Theophilus, and that shows up in the very first verse. And what's interesting is that Luke also was the author of, of one of the four Gospels. Luke was a physician by trade. He was a healer. He, he therefore, oftentimes in his Gospel, um, as all the Gospels tend to have a different point of emphasis, and they all talk about the life of Christ, but they do it through a, a unique lens that is designed to intertwine and give us a comprehensive picture of the Lord. But Luke's account tends to come uh, in, in with details that are often omitted in some of the other Gospels because he approaches things from, a, a, from the eye of a, of a physician. And there are details that, that he notes oftentimes connected to the healings, especially that Jesus did, that are unique to his Gospel. And so as we come now to the book of Acts, we realize that um, Luke is also writing this as a, as a letter to a friend named Theophilus. And, and let's just read this. It says in my first book, verse 1, I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's referring back to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but, he, but, but here is going to be what, what is Luke's summary of what happened after the crucifixion, specifically after what happened after the resurrection, what we call the ascension. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be notably shared with such simplicity that it almost, um, we're, it almost catches us off guard. We're, we're taken aback by the modest description in which Luke describes what occurs after Jesus' resurrection. So let's look at this. It says in verse 2, he says, I, I, I shared with you everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. And during those 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he, he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. The older version says, with many infallible proofs. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God or God's overarching purpose and why the king had come and what God was up to, what he was doing, why it was essential that Christ died, what the resurrection meant, why it was so meaningful for us. And then we, we, we go on and we see this. We see that after saying this, he says he was taken up into a cloud um, and while they were watching and they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into, into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, Who are, why, are, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. And again, so amazingly, the incredible is described in humble and muted terms, just tones that are soft and subtle. And just as in his coming, it was very um, uncelebrated. I mean, we sing at Christmas time, we, we talk about, oh, little town of Bethlehem, you know, how silently, how silently this, this one is given, the son is given. I mean, there's this idea that not a lot of people notice the coming of God into this world, that when the son came into this world, it was missed by so many. He heaven barely breaks out. It's barely noticed. I mean, the, we would have not have entered into this world this way. But God comes in ways that is different than what we think of often when we think of how it should have been done. God came very stealthily, very softly, under the radar, as it were, very unnoticed, silent, mild, um, on the fringe. 
And also when he leaves, his going, it's very similar to his coming. It's, it's really with just a small group of men and, and, and followers that were there, men and women who were just watching. And, and it was a, a moment that is remarkably restrained. And there were, there were not things blaring into the universe, and the nations were not being roused. It was soft, it was humble, and it was unnoticed. And yet at the same time, it was so meaningful because one of the things we realize is that the apostles were absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. There's no question about that. You know, one of the things that's amazing is that each one of them is ultimately will die in a, on a foreign land or in some way as a persecuted martyr, um, with the exception of John, who was placed on the island of Patmos. But the, the fact is that each one of them died for their testimony of Christ, that they had seen him as not just the crucified Savior, but the risen Savior. You know, and we talk about this often, that it would be one thing to die for uh, a motive, you know, maybe, um, you know, if there was something we can get out of it, you know, wealth, the power, prestige. They got nothing for their testimony. They got to die. Um, interestingly enough, it, it, they, they were all separated and yet uniformly hold to their account of what transpires. What's more, it's one thing to die for something that um, you might believe in, but you, you didn't actually witness. But it's another thing to die for something that you know wasn't true. And if you knew it wasn't true, what is there at all to be gained from proclaiming something that will, has no value whatsoever beyond costing you your own life? I mean, the, the fact of the matter is one of the most compelling uh, verifications, and ultimately it's still a walk of faith, but one of the most amazing details that's often been noted about the reality of Christ's resurrection is the way in which his disciples were transformed from a group of fearful deniers hiding out in a room to a group of individuals who went out to the corners of the world, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, declaring his resurrection and his life, and saying so even at the cost of their own lives with nothing at all to gain, none of them breaking the account, though separated by miles. It's, it's it, sometimes even on the fringes of continents. It's a stunning testimony to the reality of what they saw. In fact, it was so meaningful that we often refer to the fact that the Christian life is not a life that is defined ultimately by the cross. I know the most common symbol that we associate with, with Christianity, with, with being a Christian, the symbol that tends to dominate the landscape is the cross. And that makes total sense. We sing about the cross all the time. It is the ultimate expression of God's love for us, and he, his son died on the cross. We get that. We understand that. It was, it was an amazing display of love on the part of the Lord. I mean, but if you really think about it, the, the cross itself was simply a symbol of death. It was a form of torture to be crucified. And for the Jewish people, it was considered to be an absolutely shameful way to die, to hang on a tree. And then Jesus, not only did Jesus die on the cross, but he died as a common criminal hanging between two thieves. It was the ultimate stigma of his day to be so humiliated, to be, to be treated, to die like that. There was no honor in it. And the point being is if the end of the story, if the end of the tale, if the end of this account of Christ's life was simply the historical reality that he had died on the cross, then honestly, despite all the things that Jesus may have taught and all the good things that he said, it would have been nothing more than a tragic end. If the cross was the final word, then this really is a, a, a fairly hopeless um, thing that we are participating in that has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. I mean, everything hinges on whether or not Jesus rose. The, the disciples made it very clear. I mean, one of the things, because here's the reason why. We cannot simply say, I mean, this, 
And probably the person who made this argument better than anybody who ever, ever else ever did was C.S. Lewis when he said, you know, we cannot simply say that Jesus was only a good man and walk away if we're honest. Because so many of the things that Jesus said about himself compel us to a position. He said that he was not simply a teacher, but that he, was, he claimed to be the very son of God. He claimed to be the answer, the, the promised one, God's gift to this world, that he would give his own life that we might live. He, he talked about he was the fulfillment of, all had, of what had been promised. The reason why the sacrifices had been instilled into the very national life of Israel pointed to the ultimate coming of a savior who would give himself away. And Jesus says, I am that one. And he talked about who he was. He said he was different, that he was without sin. He talked about how he was the son of God, the son of man sent for us. Now, he, he cannot be that and then simply end it with a cross because he said he would rise from the dead. He said death would not hold him. He said he would return from where he came, that he would walk the path that would, lead, that would spring open the door for life. Now, either he was someone who was, as has been said, either a liar who just lied about who he was, or he was someone who actually believed it but was lying and therefore was a lunatic, or as Lewis says, or he was the very Lord of glory himself who calls us to bow before him and confess him as our Lord and Savior. But he cannot simply be put into the box of he's a good man, one of many ways, because he didn't claim to be that. And so we are brought to a point where we get to decide what kind of follower are we going to be? an admirer, or someone who walks with him. He invites us to come and dine at his table. Now, that brings us to the sixth chapter of John. We talked about how this sixth chapter is one of the most remarkable exchanges that occurs in all the scripture. It, it contains um, a discourse that, that was so radical and so uh, remarkably polarizing that it shifted everything in the ministry of our Lord. We walked with that for three weeks heading into, into Easter, we talked about the things that Jesus said earlier in the chapter. We're going to jump in at the 60th verse. This is a long chapter. We, we spent a lot of time on the front end of that chapter. One of the things we talked about was how popular Jesus was at this time, how many people had attached themselves to him. He had done miracles. One of those miracles was the, the multiplication of the bread, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, we talked about that. And how people said they wanted to make him king. They wanted him to use his power to free them from Rome. And they wanted him to perform and, and to do things and to use this power and, and to show them and to prove things to them. And, and, and people were very excited about Jesus, what he could do. And so they, they were following him. Masses of crowds of people were beginning to talk about how he was the promised one. And, and then it says that they even wanted to make him king by force, which is an interesting statement that they, could make, they wanted to make him king by force. They wanted to force him to be king. You're our king. You know, lead us. And it says that Jesus, that was what precipitates this conversation that occurs in the sixth chapter. Because you know what happens? Is Jesus starts to say stuff. He says things like, I'm the true bread of heaven. And they start talking about things like how God provided for the, their, peop, their ancestors in the past when they were in the wilderness. He, they, the people said, look, you, made, you provided bread for us, but, but God did that under the leadership of Moses when he sent bread from heaven. Are you greater than Moses who fed our people for, for years? Jesus says, look, if you understood who I am, then you would realize that something far greater than Moses is happening right before your very eyes. For not, this is not just about bread that you eat it and you hunger again. This is about the bread that has come down from heaven, that if you eat of it, you will never hunger again. Do you understand what is happening? If you did, you would, you would set your eyes upon me in a, such a different way. He says, listen, and then he started talking about how, how what Moses did compared to what is happening right then 
is incomparable. He says, I am the true bread of heaven. I am the, the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will not hunger again. And then he said something that was so radical, so difficult to process, to digest, that it made people immediately take a position quickly. It, it, it forced an issue. He said, look, and, he, and he's using the analogy of the Passover. He says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be mine, and then he said this thing that didn't make sense to probably anybody there. He says, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I was like, what is he talking about? It's bizarre. And of course, it created an immediate stir. He used this figurative, figurative metaphorical language to express something, but he didn't qualify it. He didn't, he didn't try to position it. He just put it out there. And it immediately created a stir. That's what sets up verse 60. Let's look at it together. It says, therefore, many of his disciples, look at John 66, 60 at the bottom of the handout there. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, they said this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Um, what's he talking about? Let's make no mistake about it. Even to believing ears, even to believing ears, when, we, when they heard these words, the claims that he was making, the, the unequivocal way in which he made them, with, again, without any qualification, were difficult for them to appreciate. Uh, the word in the literal Greek for hard is an interesting word because it means more than just hard to understand. It means hard to tolerate, hard to accept. They were really stumbling over what he was saying. What he was saying was bothering them. Again, that figurative language that, that generous use of metaphor without explicitly defining what it was he was saying. It sounded um, it, uh, offensive, uh, harsh. Many of them were befuddled by it. And, and, and in some cases, they said, this is, this is, we cannot, what is he talking about? And again, for many of them, his, his, his reference here was something that just was inconceivable. And it was really pushing them to the brink. And so keep that in mind as we kind of walk this pathway down. Look what it says in verse 61. Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained. They were, they were murmuring amongst themselves. By the way, when we see disciples here, don't just think only of the 12. Think of the larger group of followers. Disciple means follower. Followers had attached themselves to Jesus. There were layers of people who were beginning to follow him that would have said we are his disciples. But there, that group which was more than just the 12, is what Jesus is talking about. They were murmuring. They were complaining amongst themselves. How can he say this? What's he talking about? Why doesn't he qualify it? Why is he saying these things? Who does he? He is. We're willing to accept him as someone sent by God, maybe a prophet, but come on, not, not that. Why, why is he saying this? What's he talking about? How can he say it? What kind of audacity is this? Greater than even Moses. I mean, he's, there, there's, there, there's a lot of murmuring going on. Jesus says, he said to them, does this, and then he says this question that is designed to probe deeply. He says, does what I say offend you? Does this offend you? To which a lot of them would have said, yes, it does. Do my words offend you? Are the claims that I've made, do they offend you? Do you find them offensive? Are they, are they stumbling you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend? Here's the reference to the ascension that we just read about. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Are the things I'm saying about myself hard to accept? Well, you would have no problem with them. No problem believing them if you were to see me rise and leave this world and go back to where I have come from. He says basically, and he goes, and some of you will. 
He goes on to say, look, it is the spirit who gives life. The, the flesh profits nothing. Don't get bogged down in, in only this dimension of life. He says, it's this, the things that I'm saying to you, they have to do with spiritual matters. They go into the deepest places of our human existence. He says, basically, these words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. They, they are more than just natural words. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then it's like he says this, but there are some of you who do not believe. That's just the way it is. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And you know what's interesting? A lot of people have stopped on this verse. A lot of discussions, a lot has been written about that verse we just read. Because a lot of people say, well, if Jesus knew that there were people who were going to betray him, why didn't he stop it? Why did he just let it go? And it's an interesting thing to consider because at least a part of the answer is connected to his purpose, that he had come to die and to let himself be betrayed and to, and to be crucified and to be humiliated and broken for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. And there's something about the tension that exists between when God, just because God knows something and does not necessarily mean he is going to be this grand puppet master, we still have the ability to choose from our end. It's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. His foreknowledge does not preclude or take away, I should say, our free will and ability to choose a path. Jesus knew what was going on. He was not caught off guard, and yet he walked the path anyway because it was leading him to a place that he was supposed to go. Look what he goes on to say. Therefore, I said to you, listen, at the end of the day, none of, none of, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We talk, and we talked a lot about this earlier on. The weeks leading in, we, we spent some time on some of those words. Remember we talked about how really this has everything to do with God's drawing. What Jesus is saying is, if you're going to come to me, at, at least at some level, you're, it's because God is drawing you. That's true for us today. I believe this. No one, of, no one of us is here by chance. God is drawing. He has been drawing us. And yet, we talked about faith and how faith is both, listen, what, a gift and a choice. It's not either or, it's what? Both and. It, it includes both. It's both God, a result of God drawing us to him and also of us choosing to be drawn. You see? It's an interaction. It's a complement. It, it's connected. It's, in, it's intertwined. And so Jesus says, look, you, this is about who God is calling. And then look what he says. And look what it says here. One of the saddest verses in the entire chapter, maybe in, in the whole New Testament, because it says, from that time, Many of his disciples went back and they walked with him no more. They said, we've had enough. No more. We're done with him. Whatever else he is, he's, these words that he speaks, does he understand what he's doing? Does he understand what he's saying? Why is he saying these things? You can hear them talking to one another. I don't know, but I'm done with this man. I'm leaving him. I'm going. I have no more to do with this. They left. They begin, the crowd began to melt away. It, again, they had come to the conclusion that that he was not who they thought he was, and they, that he could not bring them what they were hoping for. And so disappointed and disillusioned, they had followed him when his star was ascending, but now it seemed clear that he was doomed. Anybody saying these words was doomed. In fact, we know that the religious authorities in Jerusalem had already turned against Jesus. The claims that he was making, the way in which he was saying things, what he was actually implying, uh, it was creating a tension that was going to come to a point of conflict. In fact, the rumor was already out that there was a plot being made to have Jesus taken and perhaps even killed. We know that it was actually a true rumor because Judas was already 
beginning to think about these things. And so when we, when we look at this, and, for, and what's more, there were a lot of people who were feeling like, man, the stuff that Jesus is saying now, imagine if you were with him, but then all of a sudden he's saying stuff, he's not qualifying it. Does he understand he's making this, this situation even worse? And people were going, boy, those repulsive words that he's speaking, his self-proclaiming declarations. You know, by doing this, he is displaying a kind of recklessness and a lack of self-restraint, if you look at it, that in their eyes makes following him almost something that is not just unsensible, it's potentially hazardous. I mean, he is going to create a situation where those of us who are with him are going to get caught up in what he's creating because you cannot say these things in this environment and feel like it will go unaddressed. And so many people decided they were not going to have anything more to do with him. He cannot be, whatever he is, he cannot be who he is saying he is. That's the feeling. And it's in that moment, from a human standpoint, when, when this group began to leave, it's in that moment, it, it, you know what? It must, have, it must have been difficult. Even though Jesus created in some ways this situation, it still must have been difficult to watch it happen from a, just a purely human standpoint. To all of a sudden to watch the people begin to melt away. We don't want any more to do with you. I just, you know what? We made a mistake. And just some saying it, you're not who you said you were. You can never be that. Others just kind of backing off and leaving. Until, listen, they, they, it was left with the, the, the massive crowd shrunk to a, 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 group of, a group of people, basically the disciples themselves, the 12. I, there was this um, author, his, his writer named George Buttrick. He's a preacher of days gone by. He's kind of poetic, the way, he, the way he put this. Let me just put it up there. It's kind of wordy, but I think it, it captures something here. He says, so sadly thin were the ranks around him with gaping spaces, opening up everywhere in the place of the serried. Serried means place close together. The serried rows of rapt listeners. In place of that, he says, so many kept streaming away that Christ felt far from certain of the continued allegiance, even of the 12. That, it, it, that to, to go from this excited crowd of people in the thousands to all of a sudden just watch it just filter out, melt away, angry, disillusioned, no longer interested. And it's almost like till he gets down to the disciples and Jesus must have sensed something in their eyes because there would have been no need for what he said next because what he says next is he probably looks at them who, as they are staggered, not only by what he has said, because it, it, was, it was some very controversial things that Jesus had said, and he had not explained himself. But not only would they have been staggered by what he said, but then as they watched what was happening, it's like, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And they watched the people. It was, this, this is what they had hoped for. This is what they had dreamed of. This was their dream. Everybody excited. They got in early. They got in real early, right? They signed on. They were there. They were right part of that opening group. And now everybody was getting excited. And it looked very successful. And then Jesus, what are you, what are you doing? And then people started to melt away. You know what? As they walked away, part of their dream walked away with them. Lord, you just, what, are you, what are you doing? And Jesus says these words. He must have saw it in their eyes. Do you also want to leave? Do you also want to go away? I don't know how much of silence there was. I know this. Peter. Oh, I love Peter. 
I love Peter because Peter, the way he shows up sometimes, I know he's impulsive, he's reactive. Um, he wears his emotions. He says things sometimes at the wrong time. But when he gets it right, oh, man, he soars. He soars way big. He shows up. He shows up so big here. I mean, he steps up. He, he all, I think he senses what's happening. And, and his, his loyal heart, it didn't mean he wouldn't fail, but his loyal heart steps forward. And he says, you know, Lord, no. We're not going in. Look, Lord, where, where are we going to go? We believe you, and it's a magnificent moment. I mean, his impulsiveness, yes, it was part of his weakness. It was part of his charm. It was, it was his strength because he just said it. Lord, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? We be, we, you have the words of eternal life, and, and we... All of us here, and I, th- I, it's like I hear Peter say, and I speak for, I think I speak for all of us. We have come to know and believe that you, you are the Christ, you're, you're the, you're the promised one, you are the, you are the Son of the Living God. That's what he says, and I, I and I, and he gets, and notice what he says. He doesn't say, I have come to know and believe. He says what? Look at the verse. We, we, we're not going anywhere. We have come. We, I speak, all of us, we, right? All of us, we have come to know. And it's almost like Jesus, when he said, look how Jesus responds, though. What does Jesus say? Not all of you. Not all of you. You said we, but it's not all of you. One of you's already, one of, one of you's already yielded himself to the evil one. One of you's already given up. There are fissures here that you're not aware of, my friend. Even now, the, the betrayer was, was already in process. It was already happening. Pretty amazing stuff. But what a loyal word. You know, later on, by the way, Peter would, he would deny the Lord. You know that. Many, we all know that. He meant, he meant it. We're not going anywhere, Lord. But it, what happened was he didn't know himself. See, he was strong in some ways, but in some ways he's so much like you and me because when the right buttons were pushed, and Jesus even told him, he says, look, Peter, I believe you. I know you love me, but you know what? You don't have an idea of really who you are or how vulnerable you truly are. And when this spiritual tsunami hits, you will not have the capacity to make it through. In fact, you will need every ounce of grace that can be thrown at you. And I tell you this, Peter, Simon, Simon, he says, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you and that your faith would not fail. And when you come, when you are restored, do not forget this. Strengthen your brothers. Powerful truth. You are, you are about to, and you know what Peter did? Peter denied the Lord. Peter broke with Jesus, but you know what? He never broke in his heart. And it reminds me that it is possible to hurt God. It's possible to disobey him in a fabulously devastating way. And yet in our heart, we still love him. And that's hard to explain. But it's true. And it was true for Peter because he never stopped loving the Lord, even when he failed him. And that leads me to these just concluding thoughts. Because I was wrestling with this passage. And I was sitting with him and I was saying, Lord, you know, speak to me because we're on the other side of Easter. And, and I feel like we are a hopeful people. I said, in this passage, though, there are things that sit, that I would, as your followers, I would like us to just think about. And at least this is how I hit, it hit me. So just put it real quick. Firstly, it's pretty hard to miss this. There are going to be things. He is going to give us reasons to be offended. 
there will come times where we will have the opportunity to be offended. And I, I thought there will, and there will be things that will be hard for us to understand. Questions that we will want answered that are not being answered. And if they are being answered, they're not being answered adequately. And we want to know why. Or why aren't you showing up for me, God? Or why are you saying, why are you asking me to do something that's going to embarrass me? Maybe, make, what, 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 your commands are not always easy to follow. Why don't you make them more convenient? Or Lord, why don't you show up for me and, and deliver this door? Open it up for me. I've been waiting for it, Lord. I'm a, are, you, are you offended, Jesus would say. Are you offended of me? Are you, dis, what is it, are you disappointed by what I said? Are you upset with me? By what is happening? Are you now disillusioned? Because I'm not coming through the way you want me to do it. Are you offended? Secondly, it amazes me that, that God allows himself to be hurt by us. I mean, one thing we say is, are you offended? Yeah, I mean, Lord, yes, I, I, there are times we're disappointed with you, Lord. Why don't you do this? But then he's a God, thing. All through, some of us are reading through the Bible right now. Stay with me on this. One of the things you start reading, when you start reading through the, you know, we had this year Bible reading that we're trying to do together. And when we get to the Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. Some amazing stuff, some stuff that's hard to understand too. But one of the things that will come out, one of the themes that's going to come out is that God, you're going to see it in the Older Testament. He is going to allow himself to be hurt by his people. Um, they're gonna, there's going to come a moment where he's going to say, look, I've, uh, what? they're going to turn their back on him. They're going to get into a, the, the promised land, and they're going to turn away. They're going to turn their hearts away. They're going they're to the, reject the, the plain God of Israel, and they're going to get mesmerized by what's happening in their culture, and they're going to get drawn in, and they're going to start compromising. And, and, he, and the Lord is going to say this through his prophets. He sends them voices, and he'll say, basically, he, and, and some of the words are very powerful. He says, he'll say something, and it's going to be graphic. But it's there. He says, you have been to me. God says this. You have been to his people. You have been to me an unfaithful wife. You have, you have played the harlot. You have, you have joined yourself to, to idols and forgotten me, turned on me, treated me like a used-up lover. That's what God says. You hurt me. I am a jealous God. I bore you out on eagle's wings. I brought you this land of promise. I placed you here. I planted you in this vineyard. I've given you blessing. I've prospered you. I've given you myself. I've given you my laws, my ways, and you turn on me. I think about how God allows himself to be hurt. I think about how Jesus allowed himself to be hurt by the crowds as they turned away. And he didn't say, oh, don't go, don't go. He just watched them go because I didn't perform for you because I didn't do what you wanted me to do because I'm doing it the way you want me to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm Peter. You say you love me, but you won't when it comes time. Let's see. Judas, uh, my own familiar friend. David said, my, my friend lifted up his heel against me, the own friend who I ate bread with. Shouldn't do that. When they came for Jesus, Judas leads them out. What does he do? When he identifies Jesus as the one that I kiss, he's the one. That's not what a kiss is for. And Jesus says, my friend, you betrayed me with a kiss. Hmm. I thought, Lord, it's easy for me to go, yeah, Lord, what's wrong with that? He's your disciple. I thought, Lord, how many times have I hurt you? How many times have I disobeyed you? How many times have I not just done something that I shouldn't do? But how about the times when I, I willfully ignored your voice when you were prompting me to do something? I didn't want to hear it. Or I've chosen to go my own way, and I've grieved you. 
and I've hurt you, and I've said things that you didn't want me to say, and, I, and, and I've operated in my own self-interest, Lord, in those times. And yet, listen, I, I may not have denied you, but I have denied you in other ways. And I may not have betrayed you, but I have betrayed you in other ways. Lord, I also have broken your heart at times, and yet you love us, you forgive us. See, the beauty is this. There's a Savior who has come, and, 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 and this is how it works. He loves us. He pursues us. He forgives us. He will pick us back up. Even when our wounds, he will heal us. Even when our wounds are self-inflicted, stubborn, willful wounds. Just like the prodigal son, I love the picture, on his way home, tattered, broken, barely alive, limping home. What does the God say? What did Jesus say the father does? He runs out to his son and he falls upon him and he kisses him and he weeps over him and he says, my son who was lost has come home and we will rejoice in this. And it's about everything about the heart of God for you and me. And we follow him. And even when we heard him, he loves us still. It was true for Peter. It's true for us. And that leads me to this final thing that I want to just ask. What kind of follower are we going to be? Me. Wait, we, us, by choice. Easy to be part of the fair weather crowd. I'm with you when you're popular and when you're doing what you want me to, when we want you to do. But when the word is hard and when it's easy to doubt and when things are not clear and it looks like God isn't showing up, and, our, and, and some things are failing, and we don't know why. In these places where it's easy to turn on God, what will you do? What will, do you also want to go away? Fair weather or faithful, disillusioned or devoted, we get to decide. I pray by the grace of God, and I mean it, by the grace of God, that you and I will make a decision to follow him come what may, that even when we fall, we will choose to live the days of our lives as one connected to Jesus. Because you know what? At the end of the day, one thing about Peter, say everything else, he loved Jesus. I mean, he really loved Jesus. He loved him. And that's why he heard him, to deny him like he did. He didn't want to do it, but he wasn't strong enough. You see? And the Lord knew that. He says, I have already prayed for you. You're coming home. And you'll be a different man out of this brokenness. And when you come back to me, take what you've learned and be the blessing, the strength that I've called you to be to others. Every time God works in our lives is so that we might be a blessing to the people in our lives, some of whom we haven't even met yet nor have even been born. May God do his work in our lives. May we follow him all the days of our lives. So the song we're closing with is going to talk about this idea of devotion, giving him our dreams, our agendas, our heart. We pray before we have our time of giving and closing song. Lord, I pray that this word that we've shared together would be a word of life. We've touched things, some of the things for me personally, Lord, that I most connect with. Something about Peter's failure and your love for him, Lord, that just, it just really, it's so humbling, it's so... Maybe so much of us can relate to that, God. But we love you. We love you. And we've come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And sometimes our life shows it, and we stand up for you marvelously, and, and we're, we're so proud to do it. But then there are other times, Lord, where we don't do it well, and we don't honor you well, and we break your heart, and you love us still. 
and you call us by name, and you have a plan and a path for us. And my prayer is that we would all, every one of us, follow you all the days of our lives, that even if we have to stumble our way back to you, Lord, that we'll never, never run away, run to you, not away from you. Run to you, not away. And I pray that your name would be glorified in our lives. May we respond in turn back to you. You who have given everything for us, would we give you ourselves? Take us and use us. Help us to be a blessing. So just pray for this time as we close the service. Let's not be in a hurry. Lord, we pray for your blessing over our time of giving, over this song, which is really our closing prayer. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen.